0: Welcome to the My Faith Votes podcast. I'm Jason Yates, the CEO of My Faith Votes. I really love this next conversation you're about to hear. It's a conversation with Oz Guinness, a man who for decades has been a realistic, hopeful, and nuanced voice speaking into culture. Oz is an author, He's a social critic who brings an outside view into America's culture. Having been born to missionaries in China and educated in England, he brings a perspective that we don't always have from living in the U.S. And in our conversation, Oz shares with me how France and the French Revolution is at the root of the many dangerous ideas we're fighting against in America today. I'm so glad you're here and joining me for this Fascinating conversation with Oz Guinness on the My Faith Votes podcast. This is a this is a book that I think a lot of people are going to get a lot out of. Not, I mean, from your many years of uh, just in this environment of what the culture is. I've been incredibly impressed when I have heard you speak, and um, this book though talks about. some different topics, including the war that's going on, right? Um, Does it say something like that? Well, the book is about... Uh, Let me just say that again, sorry. Uh, No, I say the war. Um, Sorry. And the book speaks about the stormy times in which we're living. Talk to us a little bit more about that and uh, the premise and what you hope people get out of the
1: book. Well, this is my third book on American freedom. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's an attempt to get to the heart of the present crisis, but to go on and be constructive mm-hmm. as to what Christians should be standing for. But the argument is everyone knows America's divided. Yeah. As deeply divided as any time since just before the Civil War. But Why? My argument is the deepest division of all is those who understand the republican freedom from the perspective of the American Revolution, which as you know is largely rooted in scripture through the Reformation and the 17th century stress on sola scriptura. And those who understand the republican freedom from the perspective of the ideas coming down from the French Revolution. And that's the big difference today. So what now people are talking about, critical race theory or cancel culture, Mm -hmm. it's just two of the many things that have come from the French Revolution, including the sexual revolution. Coming
0: from the French Revolution, you're saying critical race theory and sexual revolution. They're the same. Tell me
1: more about that. That's fascinating to me. Quite literally, the sexual revolution. People think it went back to... Hugh Hefner, Playboy, The Pill, the 1960s. Sure. It goes back to the 1920s, Wilhelm Reich, who's the architect of the term, and he quite openly says they have two opponents, parents and the church. But behind him is the Marquis de Sade, and the ideas go right back to the Palais-Royal, which was a place in Paris where the ideas for the political revolution came from and they are one at the end of the day. Hmm. Now as Christians, have got to understand where these ideas come from. They're much deeper and more comprehensive. So I don't know if you know the idea of the long march through the institutions.
0: Tell me. At the more. end
1: of the 60s, Herbert Marcuse, University of San Diego, the Frankfurt School in Philosophy, he called for a long march through the institutions. Now in 1968, hmm. 100 American cities were burning. Far more than last year, Portland and so on, far more. But the radicals knew they wouldn't win in the streets. They had to win colleges, universities, press and the media, Hollywood and entertainment. Win what they call the cultural gatekeepers and sweep around and you win the whole culture. And 50 years later, they've done it. Mm -hmm. I first came to this country in '68. In six weeks of travel, and I met Mario Savio, who led the free speech movement, and people like mm-hmm. that, uh, Grace Slick and the Jefferson Airplane, Fillmore West, and all that. I only met one evangelical leader, Carl Henry, who understood really what was going on. Mm. Most evangelicals were just out of it, out of a background of pietism, which is wonderful. In other words, passionate, warm hearts for the Lord. Right they had a faith that was privatized. Yeah. And it was in the 60s that a historian in California called the Christian faith, privately engaging, yeah. publicly irrelevant. Hmm. Now the trouble is a lot of Christians are still like that, which is incredibly irresponsible. Absolutely. Because then you know, the heart of covenantalism, which is in Exodus, is that as the Jews put it, every Jew responsible for every Jew. In other words, there's a collective solidarity, and when that comes to America, it's behind the words, we the people.
0: Mm.
1: So every American is a citizen responsible for the entire American Republic. And for Christians to opt out is a failure of discipleship, but it's also an incredible failure of American citizenship. And it also means we're handing it over to radicals and elites that are anti-Christian. Do you
0: think it's also a um, misunderstanding also of their identity
1: in Christ? Of course. In other words, they say he's Lord. And we sing it with real passion. But they don't live it out. In other words, is he Lord of the family? Or work too, or medicine and law and computer science and politics. Jesus should be Lord of everything. Yeah. Now the opposite extreme from privatization is politicization, and that's what the left tries to do: turn everything into politics. Yes. And you know the left saying the issue is never the issue. No one's to talk about this today. Something else tomorrow. That's not the issue. The real issue is revolution. So we are engaged politically, but politics is not the be-all and end-all. Yeah, you know, obviously the Lord is, and things like families and schools and all sorts of other things are very important too.
0: Sure, um, I also think that there's a, a play on words that Christians misunderstand, and and there's um, the left that uses words to manipulate and and change the meaning and um, uh, you know that's got to be something i mean that that's that's about telling the truth or telling a lie Um, how much is that impacting what's happening in culture today
1: enormously but we can't just complain right we've got to show an alternative Yeah. In other words, at the heart of Genesis and Exodus, you have a high view of dignity, made in the image of God, the highest in all history. You have a powerful view of truth, and you have a strong view of words. And you know the rabbis say that what they call evil speech, from gossip up to insults, evil speech is tantamount to murder. Mm. Because the Old Testament shows us a word created the world. And as history shows us, words can destroy worlds. Hmm. So we've got to use words very carefully. And of course, we're in the day of the social media. You take the former president, many of whose policies I thought were terrific. But his tweets were evil. Sure. And Christians should have said, I like this, but Mr. President, please not that. In other words be much more constructively critical of things we knew were wrong rather than just going wholesale because the general instincts were right. Words are one of the key things. The American Republic is finished unless there can be a reformation of words. Mm. Now that means not only social media, that means advertising. What America's done, and you know I'm speaking, Jason, as a foreigner and an admirer of this country, and I love the best of America and resist the worst. But you can see what America's done. It's not just politics; also consumer advertising. On the one hand, they, we belittle words, and then secondly, we've weaponized words. Sure. And that's what the left does. Now we take words very seriously. Every word is a commitment. It's a description of something. Is it true or false? Right or wrong? Mm-hmm. Does it respect a person or demean a person? A word is a commitment. And that's why thou shalt not bear false witness, and so on. So we've got to take some of these biblical ideas very seriously, and these are foundational. Truth, dignity, words, and then move on to freedom and justice and Mm. peace. You know, we are the champions and defenders of the highest view of freedom in history. So we should get off the back foot and stop just complaining about the left. Yes, the left is dangerous and wrong, but we've got to show our alternative. The scandal of the American church is that this is the only country in the Western world where Christians are majority, and we're called to be salt and light, Hmm. and yet we're uninfluential culturally. And you take our, say our wonderful friends, the Jews, 2% of America, and yet they punch well above their weight, intellectually, culturally, financially, and we are a majority, Mm. and we're hopeless. I think
0: uh, we are called to be salt and light, but we are salt and light, and I think there's a lot of people who don't understand that identity, that that's what we are, and therefore, that should impact and influence the way that we behave, the way that we act, and how we see the mission and the vision of Christ in today's society yeah. you talk a lot about the Covenant in this book the covenant between people the Lord versus, right yeah. um, have we have we forgotten what the word covenant means have we have we um, I don't I, I'm wondering if people in church today appreciate the power and significance of covenant.
1: No, almost completely lost it. So in a secular world, a covenant has become a contract, purely legal and narrow. But if you look, say, at the Exodus covenant, first it's a matter of freely chosen consent. Americans don't realize the consent of the government comes from Exodus. You know, when the Lord proposes the covenant, it's not ratified until it says three times all that the Lord says we will do, the consent of the government. Mm. The second great theme is the morally binding pledge. It isn't a self-interest making a a legal contract. It's a morally binding pledge Mm. that is comprehensive. It covers the family and business and all sorts of sex, all sorts of things. So you think of marriage, Mm -hmm. better or worse, sickness and health, till death do us part. That's a covenant. Come what may. Hmm. Then the third thing is what I mentioned earlier, the reciprocal responsibility of everyone for everything. Everyone for everyone, rather. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so the rabbis say it wasn't just one covenant. One rabbi said there were six hundred thousand, in other words, all the men who made it. Then another rabbi said, that's wrong. Actually, there were six hundred thousand. Times 600,000, work that out mathematically. Mm. (laughs) In other words, every Jew is making a covenant to the Lord and then to every other Jew. Mm. And that's how you had love your neighbor as yourself, and so on. So there's a collective solidarity, there's an incredible richness. Now, of course, that meant that covenant depended on promise keeping. Mm. You believe in truth, you kept your word, you're trustworthy. (laughs) And so we can act freely if you have high truth, high trust, high freedom. Low truth, low trust, surveillance. So in China, two billion cameras because they don't trust anyone. And we have more and more of it here.
0: Yeah. You talk in your book about Sinai versus Paris, I believe, correct? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, explain that a little bit more, that comparison that you're making there.
1: Well, when it comes to freedom, you know, it's often said you've got a clash between Jerusalem and Athens. Jerusalem being the Jews, Athens being the Greeks. But when it's freedom, that's not the issue. Sinai was where political, social freedom, community freedom is born. Hmm. Paris, now, I'm clear in the book, the French Revolution only lasted 10 years, 1789 to 1799. Yeah. Then came yeah. Napoleon, dictator, and he said the revolution is over. So we're not talking about M- Monsieur F- Macron's France today. Okay. But ideas have flowed out. I- if you look at it in history, I'm talking about it tonight, you had a period of revolutionary nationalism, the 19th century, revolutionary socialism, in the 20th century communism, although designed in the 19th, and today we're having revolutionary liberationism, the cultural Marxism. These are all ideas that have flowed from the French Revolution. And we need to be aware of it because the gravest threat we have today is secularism in an aggressive, hostile form to faith. And it grows from the revolution. I often quote, You know, the famous saying of Diderot, we we will never be free until we strangle the last king with the guts of the last priest. In other words, you had church and state together, both corrupt, both oppressive, so the revolution threw off both. And the radical left has been anti-religious and anti-Christian ever since. Now, you didn't have that in America because of the First Amendment until this generation. And now you've got secularism in this country that's just as hostile to faith, the Christian faith or to any religion, as they were in the 18th century in France.
0: Wow. I've got to let that digest a little bit. Um, Here's, I mean, follow up to that. It, It seems to me that if there's a change to be made, It has to come through the church. Um, You talk about secularism. It seems like we're just continuing to grow and become a more secular country. Mm -hmm. And unless the church stands, you know, we will continue down that path. Um, But it also feels like we're in a post-Christian era. So
1: where do you see things headed? Um, is there hope? Well, what do you mean by post-Christian? And, and was an, I was—I understand what you mean. You know, if we look back, I was just talking at, earlier today with Billy Graham's press officer. Billy Graham was at the high noon of the American consensus that was called in by scholars Protestant, Catholic, Jewish. Religion was a very much a positive thing. Everyone liked to be seen at church. Yeah. That consensus is gone. Hmm. Private life is much more diverse. Public life is much more secular. But in this has grown an aggressive, hostile secularism. That's what we're seeing, European style. I would say there are actually three impulses. You have those who say we don't want God, like I describe with Diderot. There are those who say we don't need God, we've got prosperity, science, technology, and now you've got a new group, those who say we can replace God. You know the book by Yuval Harari, Homo Deus, man, as God, we can do it. Biogenetics and so on. Mm -hmm. Now put all these together, you've got the rise of the so-called nuns, the receding tide of faith, and a growing hostile secularism. So Christians better wake up. Now You can't counter this politically. You can't counter it culturally. We've got to win people to faith in Christ. So we need a warm-hearted person-to-person evangelism and apologetics to persuade people. It's never just politics or a cultural thing. But we've got to be aware of what's happening. Yeah. There's never in history been anything like Western secularism. Always atheists. Hmm. You have know, atheists in the Bible, Psalm fourteen one. But a continental sized, civilizational sized secularism, this is new and very significant for the future, unless we counter it. What impact do you think that has on the rest of the world? Well, It's growing throughout the world because it advances wherever there's modernity. So if you think, who's our great rival in Asia? China. And what do they believe? They believe a Western heresy. They believe Marxism. Where did it come from? Europe. In other words, we've exported these things to the world. Now, the only serious, powerful, resistant religiously is Islam. And their challenge will be, as they modernize through wealth and science and technology, will they be secularized, too? And you can see that where Muslims are a minority in a Christian, say, majority situation, often they're moderate and there are far more secular Muslims than there would be found in the Middle East. You take this, say, our Jewish friends. You know, when the Enlightenment came, you had the splintering of Judaism. And many American Jews are as secular as next-door atheists and just have a historical, cultural background in Judaism. In other words, that will happen to many people across the world. Yeah.
0: I can't um, not talk to you about the concept of the Golden Triangle. Um, Hmm. My my wife... um, Encouraged me. She knew she, I was going to be talking with you. She said this has really impacted her and how she has thought about uh, our nation um, Speak to that if you will because I think that's powerful for people to understand.
1: Well the context that's in my first book on freedom right. which is free people suicide yeah. But the idea is the founders were aware that great tasks of freedom. You've got to win it That's the revolution Then you have to order it. That's the Constitution, and that, of course, is covenantal freedom. But the real challenge is sustaining it. Hmm. And the question is, how did the framers think freedom could be sustained? Because freedom is the greatest enemy of freedom. It never lasts. Why? Well, anyway, go into that. But the framers' solution, and this is what your wife brought up, is what I call the golden triangle of freedom. Freedom requires virtue. You can unpack all of these in depth. Virtue requires faith of some sort, and faith of any sort requires freedom. And like the recycling triangle, it goes round and round. Freedom requires virtue, which requires faith, which requires freedom. Now, each of those in some ways is very distinctive. Mm -hmm. So freedom requires virtue. Only a virtue as people will sustain freedom, the founder said. Now that's totally against the modern idea. And of course the idea that uh, virtue requires faith is against the modern idea too. Right. And now increasing, America for 400 years has had a high view of religious freedom, the first freedom. But in the last 20 years, you've seen a greater sea change in 20 years than in the previous 400. And religious freedom is now a license for bigotry. or discrimination. And this is why I say the American republic, not democracy, that's in trouble too, but different reasons. The American republic, as it was founded, is on its last legs. Mm. Make no mistake, it's on its last legs. And what's lacking is leadership to articulate where we are, what's wrong, and what should be done better. Mm. And obviously Christians have got a huge part to play in that. So no Christian can afford not to be engaged. Well,
0: so in closing, what would you say to those Christians who are not engaged? What would you say that they to either encourage, motivate? Um, what is your message?
1: Well, if you look at the Christian problems of freedom over 2,000 years, Most of them are not to do with evangelicals. Our Catholic brothers chose hierarchical power and they produced the oppressions that became things like the Inquisition. Well, we'll leave that out. Mm -hmm. Evangelicals, though, made an incredible contribution through the rediscovery of Exodus, the Reformation. Calvin, Zwingli, Bullinger, Knox, Cromwell, and then the Mayflower Compact. That's a covenant, Mm -hmm. the first political document in America. But despite that magnificent beginning, evangelicals have made the mistake, well, first of, of, quote, unhitching the Old Testament, as one pastor put it. Or to put it more gently, we've we've read Exodus as if it was spiritual only or it was personal only. Exodus prefigures my salvation, your salvation. No, Exodus is about the political, social ordering of a people. And the Reformation understood that. But the other problem comes, and this is probably more American Christians today, they see the dangers of politicization. We make a mess when we get into politics. Unless we do it carefully, we do make a mess. And Christians have made a mess in the last generation. Then they react and keep their heads down pull back. and pull back. And I've heard Christians here say, well, the early church didn't get involved. What a ridiculous answer. The early church had zero freedom to be involved. But they sowed the mustard seeds over things like slavery, which flowered later. But we have that freedom because of the Old Testament applied to the American Revolution. We have that freedom. We are responsible for the Republic. For Christians not to be engaged today is an act of unfaithfulness to our Lord and of irresponsibility politically of historic proportions. Mm. Now, let me finish like this, Jason. You know, Reinhold Niebuhr put it, the bookends of history are authoritarianism, all order, no freedom, and on the other extreme, anarchy, all freedom, no order. The biblical way through Abraham and then Moses and then our Lord is ordered freedom covenantal freedom. It is unique in history. For Americans to squander it today and allow the left to suppress it today is an act of historic folly. And I urge Christians to understand the moment and then to explore scripture and see what our views of freedom and justice and so on are, and then to get involved in the best way, acting Christianly not in secular terms, but acting Christianly as salt and light to make the difference. And I think, the Lord that all you're doing is in that direction. It's the identity
0: of who we are, how our faith compels us to act and make a mm-hmm. difference. Um Os Guinness, thank you for spending some time and sharing such incredible thoughts mm-hmm. with our audience. Thank you. God bless. God bless you. Thank you for listening in on this conversation with Oz Guinness. Just listening to Oz was for me both fascinating and eye-opening to the opposing forces in our culture and their roots. It's so important that we are wise to the shifts and trends in culture. And My Faith Votes wants to help you discern what is happening in the news each week that brings impact. We have a powerful email we call The Intersect, and it breaks down the news at the intersection of faith and politics. It's powerful, and I want you to have it for free. Visit myfaithvotes.org backslash intersect, myfaithvotes.org backslash intersect to subscribe today. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the My Faith Votes podcast with Oz Guinness.